five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, episode 88 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping, my man? Uh, pretty good, Mike. Uh, been up watching TV late the last few nights and uh, slept in a little bit, but other than that, I'm doing fine. Right, life is all good. Yeah, okay, perfect, <laughs> perfect. And it'll be spring will be around the corner before you know it, and you'll be playing golf again. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. Well... Our guest today's name comes up a lot on this show, and you've mm-hmm. brought it up many times yourself. Uh, selected in a 1980 draft by the Chicago Blackhawks, won an AHL Calder Cup in, 90, in 82 with New Brunswick, won the Calder Rookie Cup or trophy in 1983, played 884 consecutive games before a contract dispute interrupted the Ironman streak, still a record for most played with one team, won a Stanley Cup in 94 with their New York Rangers, won a Canada Cup in 91 playing for Canada, led to turning in goals, played over a 1,000 games at better than a point-a-game pace, including 441 goals, and for some strange reason isn't in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Please welcome <laughs> Steve Larmer. Larms, thanks for joining us today, and how you keeping? I'm keeping very, very good, thank you. What? So where are you living, and what are you up to these days? Well, I'm living in Peterborough right now, uh, and I have a stepson, J.R. Avon, who's currently playing for the Junior A team in town, the Peterborough Peets, and uh, actually signed a contract with Philadelphia last fall after going to their development camp and 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 training camp. So we're uh, we've been watching 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 him play hockey for the Peets this year. Fantastic! Well, wow, that's pretty cool. Hey, now, before we start, uh, Lars, like Squid and I love nicknames. Now, you've got one fans may or may not be aware of. Larms is the obvious one with the, the shortening of your name. But this one was given to you in an early age in junior, and one you don't really give to young guys by the name of Gramps. Now, what's, the story, what's the story behind that moniker, and who gave that to you? Uh, well, Steve Ludzik gave it to me. <laughs> who knew that? <laughs> we were playing uh, junior together in uh, Niagara Falls, and and uh, I liked my sleep. I always brought my pillow on the bus, and I would lie down in the back seat and and uh, try to get some sleep either before the game or on the way home. And uh, you know, those guys sitting in front of me would always be yakking or playing cards or carrying on somehow, and I would always have to tell them to. You know, tone it down a little bit, be quiet. I need my sleep. So they started calling me Grandpa, the old man. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. I was the only one on that team that ever got up and went to school in the morning. No, oh, okay. So that, that, that was a good thing anyway, that you were the one that got up and went to school and got your education. But um, that, what was it like playing uh, for the Niagara Falls? What were you, Flyers back then? Yeah, Niagara Falls Flyers. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was different. I played my first year as a 16-year-old in Peterborough, uh, and Gary Green was was our, our coach who, you know, went on to coach the 
Washington Capitals, I think at the age of 23 or 24, was the youngest coach in the NHL and by far one of the best coaches and one of the most honest people I've ever met and played for. So when I went to Niagara Falls, it was, you know, a different organization. Uh, it had just been sold and bought by Reg Quinn and uh, Burt Campbellton was our coach. Uh, our first year in Niagara Falls, and uh, uh, he was a you know a great coach and a great motivator. And I think we had like fourteen first year players on that team, um, so there was a huge turnover. And uh, Bert ended up getting us to the uh, you know we we got to the finals and we lost to Peterborough in the finals the year that they went on to uh, win the Memorial Cup that year. Yeah. Now. Um- I mean, during those years now, you've mentioned his name already. You'd make friends with someone you'd be tied to for most of your career. <laughs> both had the same initials. They even got your NHL rookie cards mixed up that became collectibles as error cards, as I recall. And I'm, of course, referring to Steve Ludzik. Was he always a character with that sense of humor? And how much did he help you make the transition to playing in Niagara Falls? Uh, well, enormously helped me a lot. I mean, we lived together our first year, so... Uh, you know, we drove to the rink every day, went to school, hung out, uh, and we've been great friends ever since. I mean, you know, we, we got three years of playing together in Niagara Falls. We both got drafted to Chicago and, uh, you know, played in Moncton together, uh, in the American league, our first year of pro we lived together down there, which was, you know, uh, quite an experience. And, uh, you know, and then and then played for years together in Chicago. So, you know, we're pretty much tied at the hip. <laughs> I would say that, Squid. Yeah. So, I mean, you get you go to Chicago. Uh, your first year, you win call win the Calder Trophy as a Rookie of the Year in the league, which has got to be under uh, outstanding for you that that you were able to do that. And I'm sure with with a lot of help from Ludzi as well and and your teammates. But what was that like to go on and win the Calder Trophy as a Rookie of the Year? Well, it was you know I mean unexpected for somebody that got drafted so late. Uh, I think, but at the same time, uh, you know that year in the American League I think really helped uh, from a development standpoint and. Uh, you know, our, our coach that year was uh, Orville Tessier. Uh, captain of our team was Billy Riley, who had a huge influence on my career, but, you know, Stevie Ludzik's career. So, you know, we were in good hands down there. There was Mike Kaziki was one of the guys. There was a bunch of Leafs that were playing down there at the time because it was a split team. They had moved their, their most of their guys to Cincinnati, in the, uh, I think it was the Central League back then. So all of their guys on one-way contracts like Mike Kaziki and Dave Farish and and guys that they, you know, didn't really have a whole lot of interest in at that time were down there with us, but they were great people and, and, and really took all of us young guys under their wing and, you know, with Billy Riley and Dave Farish and Kaz and, and those guys that really helped us. And Orville Tessier was our coach that year. And, and, you know, we went on and we won the Calder Cup that year and won the American League Championship. And then Orville was named head coach of Chicago the next year. So I think he brought five or six of us along with them 
uh, you know, Ludzi, myself, and a guy by the name of Dave Feimster, Jack O'Callaghan, who won, you know, played on that Miracle on Ice team, uh, Bobby Janisak, the goalie, and and whatnot. So I think having played for Orville that year in, in Moncton certainly helped, uh, you know, with making that transition to Chicago and, and, you know, having a coach that knew you and knew what you could do. And, and then of course, you know, putting me on that line with uh, Dennis Savarden and Al Secord was icing on the cake. So you mentioned, you mentioned Bill Riley. Yeah. So this is how small the world is and, and how close the hockey world is. When I was a kid in Amherst, Nova Scotia, Bill Riley was playing for the Junior Ramblers in Amherst, Nova Scotia, and I used to go to the games and watch him play. And that, so that is how amazingly small the hockey world is. Well, well, it is a small world, and I, and you know, and I can't tell you the influence that he had on me and 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 all of us young guys. I mean, we got down there the first day we walked in the dress room. You know, he he come over and he shook our hands and he said. You know, welcome to the Maritimes. There ain't no time like a Maritime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd have to agree with him on that. He was absolutely right. I mean, we had we had a real tight team and and a bunch of really good guys that all kind of gelled and and uh, you know we ended up. I think somebody, the commissioner of the American League at the time, at the beginning of the year, looking at our team and. And how it was set up with a bunch of young guys from Chicago and all the old guys from Toronto that they really didn't want. Um, he, he, he told the organization that, you know, these guys will be lucky if they win 15 games this year, if they don't make some changes. And, you know, we ended up winning the whole thing. So you just don't know, you know, and that's the thing about, you know, having, having a bunch of guys and throwing them into a dressing room and, people from all over the country and all walks of life, you know, Americans, Canadians, Westerners, Easterners, you know, it, it worked. We had a great group of guys and, and uh, we had a lot of fun that year and ended up winning. So now after you win, you end up now Orville Tessé moved with you. And obviously, as we talked about, I mean, he watched you play probably close to a hundred games. So he knew you well, and that gave you an opportunity to move up, which you earned. Now you got paired with Dennis Savard and Al Secord. When did that actually take place? And you know, you guys, it takes times for players to mesh as a unit. When did you sort of sense that you really had something going? Well, we were in, in training camp, and and I think you know we're, it was getting down to the nitty gritty or whatever. And it was like, okay, it looks like probably going to go. They had moved their team from Moncton to Springfield. Uh, Massachusetts, I think. So it was looking like, well, probably a good chance I'm going to go here. But, you know, Orville was always in my corner and he come over. He talked to me one day about two weeks into training camp. It's back then, training camp was usually about three weeks to a month long. Uh, <laughs> you actually went to training camp to get in shape. You didn't show up in shape. So uh, he said, listen, I'm going to try you with Dennis and Al. I think that, you know, Timmy Higgins had played there the year before and and uh, I think that we can get more goals out of that side with you because I know you can score and you, you're pretty responsible defensively. So, you know, we're going to give you probably the last three or four exhibition games in the, in the first four or five games of the regular season to see how it goes. And if it goes well, 
you'll stay here. And if it doesn't, you're probably going to go to Springfield. So I was like, okay, this is my chance. Doors a little bit open. So, you know, take advantage of it. And I think I did that. Fantastic. Um, I was going to say, you know, what were some of the highlights from your first year around the league when you finally did make it that year? Did you even get to enjoy it or are you just worried about staying in the lineup? Well, it, <laughs> I think, well, you know, playing with Tony Esposito. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I just, honest to God, I, and I tell this to people all the time. I mean, for the, I played with him for my first two years and I called him Mr. Esposito. <laughs> you'd come in after the game and there'd be a case of beer in the middle of the dressing room and you'd walk over and grab one and you know I'd walk over and I'd go that was a great game Mr. Esposito and he would look at me and he'd go ah don't call me Mr. Esposito call me Tony say, okay Mr. Esposito <laughs> but in, in having you know just the original six teams and I mean, Tony was a childhood idol. And I mean, anybody that played ball hockey back in the day, when you played net, you were Tony Esposito and you played that butterfly style and, and all of that. So it was, you know, to, to be able to play with him and get to know him becomes friends with him. And, you know, Stan Makita was around the rink a lot then, even though he had retired the year before, um, you know, but to, get to go for lunch, you know, with Tony and Stan and, you know, Keith Magnuson and Cliff Coral. It was, and to listen to the stories and it was just, I think, you know, just being around that generation of players was really cool for me. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think that probably, uh, that, that must've been a great thing for you guys to have those guys around. I mean, we didn't, in Toronto back then with Harold Ballard, I mean, he wouldn't even allow any of the alumni guys to enter the rink or anything. And then you go to Montreal and you see all the the great Montreal Canadians sitting right behind the, their bench. And you go to Chicago and you see Stan Makita and these guys walking around. And it's kind of like, wow, like that's pretty cool. But in Toronto, we weren't allowed to see these guys because they weren't allowed to come around the rink. <laughs> Well, and I think that's, you know, part and parcel to it. How how great would it have been when you were in Toronto with, you know, Davey Keon and Bobby yeah. and, and Frank Mahalich and all these great Leafs that won Stanley Cups, you know, are around and, you know, you get a chance to pick their brain and talk to them. And, you know, these, these are the people that have, you know, we're walking in their shoes, so to speak, and they understand what you go through as a professional athlete, and they can help you with a, you know, the mental side of it, the physical side of it. Somebody to talk to that actually has been there and done it. And uh, for me, it was just a great experience to experience that in Chicago. Yeah, I think that would be invaluable to have people like that around. I mean, I, I would have loved them been able to sit down and have lunch with them and talk to them, or you know, just pick their brains. I mean, it would have, it probably would have helped me a lot as a, as a young player in, in the national hockey league. Oh, no question about it. And I think, you know, all those guys. And I mean, even the, like the teammates you have, like the, you know, the Dougie Wilson's and the Bob Murray's and the Daryl Sutter's and the Tommy Lysiak's and, 
Rich Preston and all these older guys that were, you know, when I first started out that they were, you know, they were always there to, to help you. You know, they were, the, they, you know, you know, if your head was getting a little bit too big, they were the first ones to bring you right back down to earth. And then when things weren't going well, they were the first guys to come over and pick you up and make you feel better about yourself. And yeah, I always say, you, you know, you're, you're like a product of society, right? And, okay. and the people that, you know, are around you and have these kinds of influences on you are, are invaluable, I think. Okay, for the record, Doug Wilson isn't that much older than you or me, so. <laughs> he was always the elder statesman. His nickname was always the senator. <laughs> he just acted older than us, that's all. <laughs> well, well, he had played, you know, I mean, you're looking at, you know, the veterans that are on your team and the leaders and, you know, Dougie was a leader when he, at a very young age, when he first came in there. Yeah. You know, he had great mentorship and Keith Magnuson and Stan Makita. Stan Makita was his first roommate. So, you know, you have all these influences on you from these older guys that, that, that you know, you learn from. And, and then as you become older, you get to pass these things down to the younger, younger kids that are coming in. Now, Steve, I was going to say the Hawks enjoyed some success early in your career. Uh, Tessie seemed to have you guys pointed in the right direction, but that Oilers team led by that skinny kid for Brantford always seemed to get in your way. Yeah, well, I love that. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, we always, I, I swear to God, I think that every year from, I think my first year, 82, 83 on, whoever we lost to in the, in, in the West, in, in the, you know, the two divisions that were there, at that time, went on to the Stanley Cup Finals. So we lost to Edmonton. I think we lost to Calgary the year they went on and won the Stanley Cup. We lost to Minnesota when they went on to win the Stanley Cup and get to the finals those two years. So it was always one team or, or another, but Edmonton, I think, five or six times. And I can remember the one year that we did beat Edmonton out, I think, in 1990. Or, I think it was 1990. It was like, holy mackerel, what a you know, eight or nine years of trying to do this. And we finally got over the hump. It was like, in essence, a Stanley Cup win for us. Um, now do, you remember, do you remember the series you played against us, the best of five in the first round? Oh. And you finished about 40-some points ahead of us, and we swept you guys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the, but that's the funny thing about the playoffs, right? Is that you never know. And your upsets are always going to happen in the first round when you, you know, you think you can, you know, you can just throw your sticks out there and you're going to win hockey games. Well, you forget that there's another team out there and they've got some pride and, you know, you're, you're happy to be in the playoffs and there's really no pressure on you. Just go play. Now, why didn't it last for Tessier? He had such success wherever he went before. And how much did the, heart transplant comment that he made about you guys that one time. How much did that really hurt his cause? Well, I think it cost him a lot, those comments that, that he did make. And then, you know, I mean, I think I, the first two games we played in there that year, I think we lost the, I don't know. They were, they were, I think the two games, the total goals were probably, I think they scored probably 16 or 17 goals and, and we scored three and we lost. And I think 
if you were to look at puck possession, we actually scored more goals per puck possession than they did because <laughs> they had the puck 55 minutes of the game. It wasn't fair, but I mean, they had probably the five best players in the world at the time with Wayne and Mark and Yari Curry and, you know, Glenn Anderson, Grant Fuhr and Andy Mogan net, uh, they had coffee, Paul coffee and Charlie Huddy and, you know, Dr. Greg. And I mean, they were, they were a good team. Glenn Sather did a fabulous job of, of putting it together and, 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 and the style that they played at the time was, you know, unlike any other. So, and they had some real toughness on their team too. So it wasn't like they were just all skill and everything, you know, with Marty and, and, and uh, Dave Semenko, you know, Hunter, they were good. Now I was going to ask you, now just, just stick with the Tessie story here a little bit. I mean, did he change, now you played with him on the AHL and the NHL. Did he change his approach to coaching from the AHL, the NHL in your view? And if he didn't, should he have? And Squid, you can pipe in here because what is it you guys actually do to look for in a coach? Well, I think, I don't think he changed the way he coached from, you know, it was, it's hard when a, a new coach comes in and, and the older players, I think, are the ones that have the toughest time adjusting, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're bringing in six or seven new players, yeah. you know, that year and everyone's kind of, oh, well, if they're keeping him, then I guess my ice time's going to get cut down and, <laughs> and all of that stuff. And yeah. it starts to play with you. So you, you're not as open to change as, you know, the young guys are coming in hungry and this is my chance and I'm going to prove myself. And I think, you know, a lot of the older guys maybe at that time really weren't, you know, going to buy into it. And, and, you know, and ultimately, you know, that was probably part of it. And the fact that, uh, you know, what he said about the heart transplants and, and, and stuff like that, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think, you know, Orville was good at holding people accountable. And, and, you know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you're really not playing for your coach. You're playing for your teammates. So I'll leave it at that. Squid? So, I, I mean, I, I liked Orville. I had Orville. Uh, I know he coached in Cornwall when I was in Sherbrooke, but I played in the World Juniors, and there was several coaches, and he was the one from the Quebec League. And the, at the start of it, they told us that, okay, every – game we're going to start with four lines and then if it's a close game uh, we may whittle it down to three lines or we may take someone off one line put them on another line well that never happened it was all three Quebec guys Rick Patterson uh, Daly and myself we never got to play in the second or third periods in any of the games and I know that really bothered Orville he came to us after the tournament and said boys I'm really sorry but that wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. You guys deserve to play a little bit more. And I, I thought that was great that he took the time to explain that to us. Oh, he was a, he was a really good communicator. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like when you walked into his office or whatever, he was yelling and screaming at you. He talked to you like you were a man. So mm -hmm. here, you know, we're man to man. And, you know, sometimes you don't like what you hear, but at least you're getting the truth or that version of the truth. But like you said, at least he took the time to explain it to you and, and that it wasn't supposed to happen that way. But ultimately, 
you know, there's other people sometimes above them that are making decisions too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe now, you know, Larms, talk about some of these string of coaches that followed behind him, Bob Pulford, Bob Murdoch, Mike Keenan, and then Daryl Sutter. You had yeah. a variety of them. I had a variety of them. I think I had Pulley probably two or three times. Because <laughs> when he when he would fire fire a coach, he he uh, he would uh, you know take over for however many games until he could find his replacement or whatever. But that's that's funny because there there's a one time Billy took or Billy Gardner hurt his knee one time, tore the ligaments in his knee, and he was you know back in the old days where they actually yeah the. MCL or whatever, where they had to cut you open and put you in a cast and stuff like that. So we were playing in LA one day and boy had fired a coach and he was talking or coaching us at the time. And Billy was coming back from rehab. So part of Billy's rehab was pulley grabbed a, 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 a chair, brought it out to center ice with a cup of coffee and a cigarette and sat there, drank his coffee, and smoked his cigarette, and blew the whistle. Rehabbing Billy Gardner on the ice, doing laps and squats and starts and all that kind of stuff. So that was like old home hockey. Oh boy, uh, he was he was quite a character, Pulley. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah, he was. He, that, I mean, it, it, all of them, I and mean, we had Bob Murdoch for a little while, and. Uh, you know, and then Mike Keenan came in, and he was there for quite a while, actually. And then uh, Daryl Sutter took over from uh, Mike. Well, yeah. I was going to say to you, I'll go back to Pulford. I mean, if you were called Gramps, he would be Grumps. <laughs> oh, he was always grumpy. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. how was your relationship with him? I know, Squid, you kind of had an off and on one with him, but uh, how about you, Larbs? Well, I had a pretty good – I mean, I had a – I had a pretty good relationship with him. I mean, it was always, you know, it, you know, trying to get money out of pulley was like, <laughs> you know, squeeze, trying to squeeze blood out of a rock. But um, I think at the end of the day, I mean, he always was, he was like a father figure, I think, to a lot of the young guys that were on that team. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, it was, he always knew, he always thought he knew what was best for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he was wrong but but i think at the at the end of the day he, you know he really cared but it, it you know you know as a player sometimes you got to voice your opinion too and you know I'm, i don't i wasn't scared to speak up to him either so well it's kind of it's kind of funny because he he looked out for worse his money like it was his own well, and, uh, <laughs> he squeezed. He he was so tight with the Wurtz's money when he squeezed the nickel, the beaver shit. Oh yeah. Well, I, I remember because that my contract after I got traded to Chicago after that first year, and we had a good year that year. I I got to play with you and and Savvy. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think all of us had over forty goals. And uh, anyway, my contract was over. He offered me a forty thousand dollar pay cut and. <laughs> so Bill Waters called him. He finally got an arbitration date. Police said, uh, blah, Bill, um, <clears throat> you know, it's going to happen if uh, he goes to arbitration. Bill said, yeah, you're going to trade him. No big deal. Two days later, I had a new contract with a raise. I couldn't believe it. It was like 
why did this take all summer, you know? <laughs> well, everything's done at the last minute to make you sweat, right? Yeah. <laughs> like when, when, when you got traded, my contract was up and I said, well, you know, I heard Ricky Vibe makes $100,000 more than me. So I, you know, I play on the same line with them. We have the same numbers and I kill penalties. I should make more. <laughs> well, I don't disagree with you on that. <laughs> he looked at me and he says, "Well, well, I didn't do that contract. That's a contract we inherited from the trade." And I was like, "Well, okay. So how was that my problem?" <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth is, they did inherit it, but it ran out after that first year. Yeah, they had to re-sign me. So, so he was lying to you. <laughs> Well, yeah, he had a, yeah. Well, how do you know about that, right? <laughs> now, how about now? How about Mike Keenan? Now, his name comes up a lot every show. I think eight, you're our eighty-eighth one, Steve, and I think there's been eighty-seven stories at least come up from Keenan every time he's uh, somebody's on the air. You must have a story. And now, listen, you come from a different angle because you had him in Chicago. You won a Stanley Cup with him with the Rangers, and you won a Canada Cup with him in '91. So you must be one of the few guys who enjoyed some success with them. But having said that, I can't imagine it was stress-free. Oh, it was totally stress-free. It was, you know, playing for Mike was like being on a deserted island. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I, you know, I, I probably played, I probably played more games for Mike than yeah, I. He probably coached me more than he had any other player, I think, because I had him for what did I have him for five or six years in in Chicago, and then I had him in New York, and you know a little bit with the Canada Cup and everything. But the the first two years was living hell. I mean, you wanted to murder him. We uh, <laughs> wanted about it. Well, yeah, it was just so so different uh you know even the first day of training camp you come walking back into the old chicago stadium and you know our our pool room and our lounge was gone and it was now the training room and and the, yeah. the storage room where you know all the equipment the extra equipment and the sticks and all that were stored well it was now a weight room and it was like state of the art and you're walking in at training camp and you're looking around going Oh shit! This is going to be quite the ride. <laughs> it's a lot different, and I can remember, you know, the, you know, practices. His practices. He never practiced long. His practices were never six, more than sixty minutes, but they were a very intense sixty minutes. It was, you know, you're going to practice as hard as you play, or. You're going to play as hard as you practice, and you're going to practice hard, and that we did. Um, and then it was into the gym after for, you know, a pretty strenuous workout after that. So there was a lot of that that went on the first year and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. And, 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 I mean, I can remember we lost a game, and we lost a game in Detroit one night, and I don't know, we got blown out 9-1 to one or 11-2 to two or who knows what it was, but – you know, and that was before we were chartering. So, you know, we got to get up the next morning and we're practicing in Detroit before we fly back home and we're out there practicing 
I think from nine to 10 o'clock before, you know, the Red Wings are out there practicing. Well, we had 60 minutes with no pucks. There was nothing but down and backs and sideboards for 60 straight minutes, you know, and then at the end of 60 minutes, you know, you get called in and you're, you know, somebody's leading the stretch or whatever at center ice and he's just skating around everybody. And he says, you know what? He said, you had your chance to work for 60 minutes last night. You didn't do it. Well, you work for 60 minutes tonight. So just remember that. Right. And then skate it off. And, but we had many of those practices, many, many, oh. many. I mean, we, we, one of your first practices, Squid, in oh. the stadium. <laughs> it was painful. Well, I remember the one in, uh, in particular where our line was together with some other guys at each, and there was guys at each end, and we had to go down and back, down and back. And Denny kept turning at the boards instead of stopping. Yeah, he wouldn't stop. And so every time we came back, he blew the whistle and said, go again. So we just kept going after, one after another. And, and I think we went about 14 times in a row. Yeah. And finally, Doug Wilson grabbed Savvy and threw him up against the boards and said, stop. <laughs> anyway, I, I was cramping up, go, uh, laying on the ice, and my legs were cramped up and everything. It was, it was kind of crazy. But, uh, but I will say, and as much as I didn't agree with how he kind of handled everything, Mike was a pretty darn good coach, and he, he was good on the bench. He ran the bench well, and, and the team was always prepared going into a game. Yeah, no, he was. And, you know, I mean, after the first two years and, and stuff like that, I mean, I have a lot of appreciation for what he did for me in my career and, and you know, having chosen me to play in the Canada Cup and, and having, you know, putting me on a line with Wayne Gretzky and, you know, it was a, just a fabulous experience for me. And then, you know, when things kind of went south in Chicago and, you know, he was a, a big reason I got traded to the New York Rangers, you know, and having the opportunity to win a Stanley cup in that city was fabulous and, and all for us. So I owe a lot to, you know, Mike and, you know, for, pushing me to become a better player. So, well, let's go back to that just before you get to uh, like September 3rd, 1987. The Hawks move your longtime linger, LC Cord, along with popular Eddie Elchuk, a local guy, for the guy we're talking with, Bob McGill and Steve Thomas. What were your initial thoughts besides the fact that uh, Squid Guy's making 100 grand more a year than you? <laughs> wow. American, too. Fair yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's 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 always sad to see, you know, and that's the problem with that business. It's you know, there's a group of guys that come up together, and then you know, three or four years down the road, you know, slowly but surely, they all start to, you know, get traded away or retire or or do whatever. But uh, you know, it was sad to see Al go because Al was, I mean, Al is a great guy. Number one, he's a fabulous person. And, you know, he had a couple of 50-goal years uh, with us. And, and uh, he brought a lot of toughness and and uh, net presence and all of that with him, right? And uh, you're always sad to see your, your teammates go yep. uh, at any particular time, no matter who they are. You spend time with them in the locker room. You become, you know, the one big happy family and – and uh, 
it was sad to see him going. I always tell people now, it's like, you know, the, the saddest thing is, or not the saddest thing, but the one thing about you can say about him, he's probably the last guy that scored 50 goals in a year and had 35 fights in a year. Teams don't even have 35 fights now. So, <laughs> you know, but it's just an amazing, you know, to be able to have that much of a physical presence and then that much skill to score goals too. And I think that in the, in itself is absolutely incredible. And uh, the other way. I would think probably at that point in time in his career, though, Lars, would you say that I think when he got to Toronto, John Brophy really wanted him because of his toughness and that. I think he was kind of, at that point in his career, was kind of finished with that. I think he was at the point where he didn't want to do that anymore. Would that be accurate? Oh, I think so. I think when you've done it for as long as he, he had done it for, and the amount of fights year in and year out over the, you know, at some point in time, yeah, it's just, it's, you, it's, why would you want to do it? Who would want to do it in the first place? Let, yeah, alone, really. <laughs> let alone, you know, be expected to do it. And, you know, you're, you're called upon on a nightly basis to, you know, you're our tough guy. You're the guy that has to do it, right? As opposed to having it spread out a little bit. But, you know, you get those guys, they get tired of it. And, and I don't think Al was, like you said, I don't think he was, you know, really wanting to do it as much anymore. Now, moving on, the summer of 1990, Dennis Savard's move for Chris Chelios. Were you now thinking, now there's two-thirds of your original line gone, but you're, of course, playing with Squid. But what was, was at that point you were thinking yourself, maybe the end was coming near for you as a Hawk? Well, I think, well, when you look around, when you look around the dressing room, yeah. you're like, I don't really know anybody anymore. <laughs> yeah, that, that thought does kind of slip into your mind, but you, it happens. I mean, teams evolve, and, and and you can never, you know, it never remains the same. And and after a while, you get kind of, you know, cold to it in a sense, and and it's like you know, all these new players coming in and, and whatnot. And it's not that you don't like them or you don't want to be around them or anything. It's just that you don't want to make friends with them because, you know, it's going to get ended, you know, via trade, whether it's you or, or them. And, and we went through it, uh, you know, with, a, you know, in the early 80s with guys like, you know, Ricky Patterson, you had mentioned, he was there in Chicago early on and, and, uh, you know, Billy Gardner gets traded and all these guys that you come up with, Stevie Ludzik and, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Dougie Wilson ends up leaving and who I would have thought would have been a hawk forever. Uh, Bobby Murray and all these guys. So, it, it, you know, you kind of take a look around and you go, you know, if it can happen to Tony Esposito, it can happen to anybody. And, and at the end of the day, it does. So you kind of just get – a little bit colder towards, you know, getting too close to some of the new guys when they come in. So, Lars, I want to take you back to when you and I played together. Like, one of the things I remember is we, well, I wouldn't say we had a competition, but we always went to the rink early, you and I. And I think one time I remember saying to you, like, 
why don't we just grab a cab together? Why waste money on two cabs? But I remember, <laughs> I can remember trying to beat the other guy to the right before a game, and then we'd sit in the stands, tape our sticks. I believe we were both smoking cigarettes at the time. <laughs> and uh, I think finally, I think we, we decided. You were, yeah. you were smoking my cigarettes. <laughs> no, no, no. Come on. <laughs> Uh, I think Bob Murdoch called us a Marlboro line, if I'm not mistaken, at one point. Yes, he did. <laughs> I would have been rather have called the dart line because that would have insinuated that we were really quick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was the case. Well, at that time when uh, Savard was moved, did you notice that his game was slipping a little bit? Now, this is not a knock in him, but you had your best year the year he left. Well... <sighs> No, I, I, I mean, I, I love Dennis is, uh, I mean, it, 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 you know, I say it's, I don't think he gets the, the respect that he deserves during that era because there were so many, you know, there was Wayne Gretzky yeah. and Mark Messier and Dale Howarchuk and Brian Trache. And I mean, there were a lot of great, great, great players, but Dennis was the one guy, no matter where we were playing, on the road or at home, when he got that puck, people stood up because yeah. something great was going to happen. He was like a little water bug out there that just was darting all around. It was hard to hit. It was a great passer and a playmaker. And, you know, off the ice, one of the most generous guys you're ever going to meet in your life. So I don't think he was, you know, his skill set was – diminishing as as much as I think Mike's you know Mike Keenan's want for a guy like Chris Chelios and his reputation and how he played on the edge all the time and and stuff like that yeah I remember uh speaking of Dennis I, I remember getting traded there we moved into the development where he lived and him and uh Mona his wife yeah. Uh, really helped us a lot, especially my wife finding different, showing in different places where uh, she had to go to get things and stuff like that. So they were, they were great people, and uh, uh, I had a, long, a lot of fun with you and Savvy there for the year and a half that I was there. Um, I thought he was a great guy. Um, that You're right. I, I don't think he got enough credit for how good he was. Like, that might... I think we were playing Edmonton at home. He geeked, I think, everybody on on Edmonton out, including two guys twice, and scored a goal. Like, it was unbelievable. Like, we were just kind of standing there on the ice watching them do it. Yeah, it was a shorthanded goal. They still play it on PSN, right? One of the top ten goals. Yeah. And it was shorthanded. And I remember, I remember, you know, jumping on the ice at, near the end of it, and I think he beat Kevin Lowe three times on that shift. <laughs> But it was, yeah, you were right. You got, it, it was one of those moments where, you know, I jumped on the ice and kind of stopped there at the blue line and watched the last 10 seconds. Because it was beautiful. You know, and he would, he, I, I, I mean, I played with him for five or 600 games and, you know, I'm lucky I had the best seat in the house because I got to see that every night. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1993, your tenure in Chicago comes to an end. How did that all come about? Well, it was Mike Keenan. 
He wanted them in New York. <laughs> oh, let him tell the story. <laughs> well, Squid's right. <laughs> well, that's we want to hear the story. Well, actually, I got traded to Hartford for 30 seconds, but the uh, I just it was. You know, something we've talked about for the last 30 minutes is that over time, right, everybody's gone. Yeah. You know, and you're looking around going, okay, well, you know, I'm old and um, this team's getting younger and it needs, you know, you need to change and it needs to evolve. And I get that. So it was like, there's no point in coming back if if we're going to be that team that's like stuck in neutral. We're we're not going forward and we're not going backwards. We're just going to be a team that gets into the playoffs, maybe wins a round or two, and then we're done. Right. And that's not really what you want. So, you know, my thought was, it's like, it's time to get out of here. Uh, you know, Mike had left and Daryl was coaching and I had played for Daryl. He'd coached the year before and, you know, that was my first year of playing for him. And I mean, we lived basically kitty corner from each other for six years. Well, we played together in Chicago. We drove to the rink every day uh, for practice and to the airport and, and all of that. And then it was, it just, for me, it was way too hard to play for him having, you know, that player player relationship yeah. as opposed to player coach relationship. I just, you know, I, I, it was uncomfortable for me and it was not a situation I wanted, you know, to put myself in or him. And, you know, it was probably better with the way everything was going that, you know, I asked to be traded and I asked to be traded in April of that year after I think we got beat out by Minnesota. And, uh, you know, you know it, it took until I don't think Pulley believed me. Uh, when I, you know, told him about a week after the season that it was probably good for a change and time for me to move on. And, you know, if I go to a really young team that's really bad, that's good too because at least I can help mentor some players and, you know, help them out off the ice. Or, you know, you go to a team that's maybe got a legitimate chance to win. So it turned out really well for me. So I want to uh, – Lars, let's go back to – uh, uh, the coaches for, for a minute and uh, Daryl and uh, Bob Murdoch. I don't know if you recall in St. Louis in the playoffs when I, I think it was the first time I ever saw Bob Murdoch get mad and he started screaming and yelling in, in the dressing room after the first period of the last game of the series. And then they get locked in that room across from us where and they had to take the forklift out and open the door and uh, so we were on the ice and I remember saying I think the referees were saying where are the coaches and I, I can't remember who it was on the team said don't worry about it let's just drop the puck and get going we don't need them anyway <laughs> yeah I know I would you know why would they take a fork a forklift to a perfectly good door <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I remember that. Well, he was so mad at us, right? He went stomping back into the room that they were staying in there, and he slammed the door shut, and it jammed. Yeah. So, yeah, I can remember that. They <laughs> oh, don't worry about them. They quit. 
<laughs> yeah, we, we wanted to go ahead and play without him, and, and the referee said, "No, oh, well, you can't do that." <laughs> yeah, well, there's, yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's a it's a different world now. Thank God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Lawrence, before you played went to New York, you played in the 1991 Canada Cup. Uh, now, this one guy I want to talk about on that team. He ended up being your captain in New York, Mark Messier. What was the redeeming quality of him that stuck with you before you went to New York? And was that sort of an influence in you to have you go to New York when you did end up going there? Well, I mean, I didn't have any choice where I went because I actually got traded to Hartford. And then from Hartford, I got traded to New York. But, I mean, playing, you know, playing in the Canada Cup with all those, all of that, that whole team, I mean, with Wayne and, and Mark and, you know, a bunch of guys from Chicago were there, Eddie Balfour and Dirk Graham and uh, uh, Steve Smith played in Edmonton and he ended up getting traded to Chicago. So uh, Brent Sutter was there. So, uh, you know, there was a comfort level with, with, with those guys, but uh, it was really cool playing with Wayne, like, you know, having that opportunity to be on the same ice with him and the same line and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, one of the, obviously one of the highlights of my career for sure was, uh, you know, the experience of playing in that, in that tournament. Okay. But well, here you go. This may sound like a dumb question, but playing with Gretz, was it, a, is it hard? Like explain to the listeners, it's not as easy as everybody thinks it is playing with a guy like that because a player of that level and you're an elite player yourself, but they're two or three steps ahead of everybody else. So if you're not ready, things can go real sour, real fast. Well, yeah, you, you got to, and I always, like I tell the young lad now, I mean, the one thing about playing hockey and, and when you're playing with really good players is you always have to expect the unexpected. Things are going to happen when, when you know, somebody's going to put the puck right in the sweet spot and you better be ready for it. And it's going to be coming, it could be coming from anywhere. And I mean, I think, you know, having had the opportunity to play with Dennis Savard for so many years because he kind of played that way too. He was, yeah, okay. You know, a, a speedy guy, but he was he was he could stop on a dime and turn, and and a lot of plays were were like that, where you, you know, were coming in late or whatever, and Dennis would just lay the puck across the ice and let you skate into it, and 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 so for me playing with Wayne, it was a lot similar, you know. Very similar to playing with Dennis, but you know the, you know it's like you're every day you wake up and you're like, oh my god, I'm playing with Wayne. I'm playing with Wayne. <laughs> I can't sleep. I you know probably smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. <laughs> you're just so nervous because it's like I you know you just don't want to let anybody down. And and uh, you know it was a relief when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was a ton of fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. I, I'm, I and what Mike brought up. I mean, I I remember my whole career, with the exception of the year I played with you and Dennis, where I had a centerman that would, you know, like you say, would go east west a lot more, and you had to be patient. But I played with Wayne in the World Championships, and I remember I think they put us together for like one game I went offside two or three times because he turned up to make a play and I kept going because that's what I was used to doing. And then the next thing I know I'm not playing with him anymore. And it was like, Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that didn't go so well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing I think playing with Dennis really helped 
me prepare for playing with with Wayne in that tournament. So, you know, and then, you know, of course, you know, playing with Mark and we had, you know, he's just the leadership from a leadership standpoint. I mean, there is, you know, there's no other guy in, in that sense. And, and uh, you know, he's a, not really a guy that I don't think says a whole lot, but when he does say something, people listen. And, uh, you know, he leads by example. I remember the one year in the playoffs uh, when I was with Chicago and I thought we were into Edmonton. I think we split the game. We split games in Edmonton. It was 1-1 coming back to Chicago. And I think we won, I think we won game three. And then game four, we lost. And I always talk to Jeff Bookham about this because it was like he was possessed that night. Um, you know, I said, Book, what did he say to, you know, before the game or whatever? Or just did he say anything? And, and he's like, no, he didn't say anything. The only thing he said was, we can't take penalties against this team because their power play is too good. So we got to stay out of the penalty box. So the very first shift of the game, he cross-checks Dougie Wilson across the head with his stick, breaks it, gets a two-minute penalty. <laughs> right? Comes out of the box, and something else happens where he breaks the stick slashing somebody, breaks it in half slashing somebody. Two minutes for slashing. Right? So he's the guy taking the first two penalties. Do you think anybody went – that changed the whole series. I mean, he – when you looked at him that night, you weren't even there. He looked right through you. It was this. It was the most incredible thing I ever said because I, I always talked to Book about it. It's like holy mackerel! I never seen a, uh, you know, it was possessed almost to that point, right? But but just just an incredible leader and a, an incredible player. So years later, Arms, you go to New York. Then he makes a guarantee, like going into, what was it, game six, I believe, in New Jersey. Yeah. So we are going to be coming back for game seven in New York. What did you think of that? And did that put any pressure on the team, or, or did that lighten things up or anything like that? Well, I just, I'm just thankful he scored the hat trick that night. <laughs> <laughs> like you talk about, you know, when you make that kind of a promise, but then when you perform like that, come on. That's, yeah, that, that's made in movies, right? That doesn't happen in real life. But he, you know, and I mean, he, we had a really, we had a, a, an incredible team, you know, that year with, you know, we had, you know, Kevin Lowe and Jeff Bukaboom. We had a bunch of guys from Edmonton that had won multiple cups and Craig McTavish and Glenn Anderson and, you know, along with Mark. And uh, it was, you know, just the steadiness of, of the, you know, the process that we went through, I think, to win it and win, you know, because we, we had a great regular season. I think we won the President's Cup. And then, and then uh, you know, we went into Long Island. We beat them four straight. Uh, you know, we, our next series was against Washington. We beat them in five games. And then we go and we play New Jersey. So, uh, and that game went – you know, that series went seven games. So there were some games in there that were really tight and, and, and some momentum changes and stuff like that. But, you know, they were always, you know, calm, cool, and collective throughout the whole process. I mean, they were, you know, 
in our dressing room, you wouldn't, you know, we could have lost 10 nothing the night before. And, and it was no different than if we lost one nothing or if we won one nothing or if we won 10 nothing. So there was this calmness about it and, and preparation and getting ready for, for all those games, which was uh, a really cool thing to be part of. Now, Larms, was it true that Keenan was playing head games with Brian Leach and then Messier stepped in and told him to lay off him? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were all kinds of. Yeah. I mean, I, there were all kinds of things where I think Mark went to friggin', you know, went to Mike and said, just stay out of the way. <laughs> don't, get, don't get in the way. Don't ruin this. And, and I can, where my seat in the dressing room in Madison Square Gardens was, you know, I could see down this, there was this little hallway that led into the uh, change room and where the showers were. And, like the coach's office were on the other side of the hallway. So they come in through the change room and they'd be coming down the hallway. And I had this perfect seat and Mark sat right across from me by the doorway there. And I could see Mike coming in and you could hear these, you know, foot stomps and you know, <laughs> holy shit, he's going to just lay into us. Right. And then, you know, Mark all of a sudden would get up and start talking about what we need to do and blah, blah, blah. And then slowly Mike would slow down and he would stop and he would listen for a couple of seconds and he'd turn around and, and, and leave the room. Right. And it was like, thank God, Mark, you got up and said something because we were here. And you know, we've been walking out the dress room feeling, you know, feeling about two inches tall, but uh, we had that uncanny knack for saying the right things at the right times. Right. So, I mean, it was just a, an incredible experience and then you know the opportunity to play with you know guys it wasn't it was almost like it wasn't unfair with brian leach and zuboff on the point i mean yeah. they had the puck on a string and you know you could try to kill a penalty against those two were you know it was embarrassing thank god uh they were on our side but you know it was adam graves and just an incredible experience in a great city to win in hey any uh, memorable moments from winning the cup during the celebration? Uh, no, just, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a journey. It's two months of living hell with, uh, you know, playing almost every other night and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I always say like, it's painful to win and, and you're exhausted and tired and extremely sore when it's all over. So, uh, but well worth it in the end. And, uh, we, you know, we just we couldn't have had a better group of guys to win it with. So, Larms, uh, before we uh, get close to the end here, yes. yeah. I've always said, and Mike's heard me say it, I don't know how countless times, that I think that you probably were the most underrated player in the National Hockey League. I mean. I don't even hear your name brought up for the Hall of Fame every year, which is ridiculous to me when you think of what you did as a player uh, over a point of game, won the Calder Trophy as a Rookie of the Year, won a Stanley Cup, and they don't even mention your goddamn name. I, I don't get it. Like, uh, it, it, it bothers me. That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it bothers me because I, I got to play with you and I got to watch you play and play against you. And there's no doubt in my mind that 
you deserve to be there. And, and, and it bothers me every year when I don't even hear your name brought up as potentially going into the Hall of Fame. Like, that just drives me crazy. I got to give Lanny a call and let him know. <laughs> no, I, it's, you know, it is what it is, right? So you can't go back and change anything. And, and you know, at the end of the day, I hope that, you know, the most important thing is that I was a good teammate and and tried to show up and, and do the best that I could every night and, and uh, you know, and have the respect of your teammates. And that's all that really matters. So I'm real happy with that. Well, well that, you, that you did, and, and uh, for sure. You had the uh, backing of your teammates and the respect of your teammates, and, and, uh, and you did everything else too. So I, uh, I love the opportunity to play with you, and uh, hopefully I get down uh, that way at some point and we get, to get together and uh, shoot the crap. Yeah, go play around the golf with Big Daddy. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, he's up that way now. So, yeah, that, is, um, that sounds good to me. Well, right. we, we want to thank you for being with us for so long. Just got a couple of minutes left here. And, by the way, your name has does come up a lot on the show from players, and they all echo the same sentiments that uh, a Squid mentioned, too, and uh, to a man that basically say that. So good on you. Um, thank you. But speaking of your um, teammates, Money Real Buddies, we've talked about a few times now, Billy Garner, Wanted me to highlight a couple with you to see if you refresh your memory. And you talked about that Edmonton series against uh, where he got hurt, hurt his knee. He reminded us, Antonio, you've mentioned also, there was a Tonio incident apparently where you went back fishing with him one day with you guys. And Billy was in the cast. And you were in charge of uh, putting the downriggers lures on and all this. And you were circling around Lake Michigan and you weren't catching anything for a reason. Do you remember that story? Well, I don't think Billy put any bait on the hooks. <laughs> he blamed you. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> and they were dragging along the ground of the uh, or the bottom of the lake. Well, they might have been, been dragging around with a, a couple of Miller lights that might have had something to do with it. Well, that he did mention that too. There was quite a few of those. I mean, what I really wanted to remind you about was when you guys are rookies in the Memorial Cup, and this this is a good one, Squid. How about this? Like playing in the Sioux Sudbury. They were on a bus that was going back and forth, but it was a three-hour trip, and the bus broke down, so they had a hitchhike. Do you remember that night you had to do that? Oh, yeah. We were – yeah, we played a game in, in Sault Ste. Marie, and we were on our way back to Sudbury. And, you know, we were playing in the finals and whatnot, right? And our bus ran out of gas, I think. <laughs> I think it broke down. I think it ran out of gas. About about 20, 20 miles outside of Sudbury, right? So Gary Green and Dick Todd, the, the coach and the trainer, and, and uh, you know, they're sleeping on the front of the bus or whatever. And slowly but surely, like, everybody's getting off the bus. The sun's starting to come up. And everyone's getting off the bus and hitchhiking into the hotel. So Greener and, and uh, you know, Dick Todd wake up, and they're like, where the hell did everybody go? Because, well, they're all freaking hitchhiked it back into town or whatever. So, so – there was like myself and Terry Bovere and, and Billy Gardner, I think we're the only three, we were the last three on the bus because Terry Bovere and my, myself weren't playing a whole lot, but Billy was right. But he hung out with us because he's a good guy. So anyways, Dick and, and Greener get off the, the bus and they hitchhike into town, but their ride could only take them halfway before their turn off. So after they left, Billy and I and Terry, 
you know, we get out there and we hitchhike. So we get picked up by this guy in a half ton. So there's four of us sitting in the front seat of the half ton. And we drive by Greener and Dick on the side of the road, right? They still got five miles to go. So Bo and I are kind of like waving at them, right? Like there's no room in here. So you're on your own. <laughs> so anyways, we get back to the hotel, sleep, whatever, practice. The final game of the Memorial Cup, we're playing New Westminster or whatever. Well, obviously, Terry Bovera and myself, find our, we find ourselves sitting in the stands again. <laughs> Was it because we left the coaches on the side of the road or because we waved at them politely? <laughs> but that, that's a why, didn't you, why didn't you just throw them in the back of the truck? And get in the back, boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, we thought that, but nah, forget it. They'll find a ride. Well, I want, want to thank you again for all of, for all the time you spent with us. Uh, you've, you've been a great guest, and uh, thanks for the great stories. And uh, best of luck to the uh, your stepson moving forward, and hope he does well. And Squid, you guys will get a game hooker this summer. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, well, Squid, it's always great to see you. All right, Paolo. We'll get together this summer and play some golf. Yeah, and thanks, Mike, for everything. It's been a blast. Hey, great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks again.